0: This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com.
1: I have a special announcement for you today. Slate is having a holiday sale. For a limited time, we're offering our annual Slate Plus membership at $25 off for your first year. It's a great deal. Think of it like this. You pay $10 or $15 a month for your music and streaming subscriptions. With Slate Plus, for less than $4 a month, you can get member-exclusive episodes and segments from us and other shows like Slow Burn, Amicus, and Political Gab Fest. No ads on any of our podcasts and unlimited reading on the Slate site. Best of all, you'll be supporting our show and Slate's journalism. Sign up for Slate Plus at slate.com slash mood plus. Again, we're giving $25 off your first year as a member through December 29th. So sign up now at slate.com slash mood plus. Hello and welcome back to Big Mood, Little Mood. I am your host, Danny M. Lavery. And with me in the studio this week is Olivia Charmaine Morris, an artist, activist, and the founder and CEO of Black Monarch Entertainment. Her new Instagram live lifestyle series, The Tea, invites celebrity guests to participate in intimate conversations. Olivia, welcome to the show.
0: Thank you so much for having me, Danny. I'm so excited to be here.
1: I am so looking forward to it as well. Uh, And I'm also looking forward to hear a little bit more about your own series and your own approach to interviewing people. Uh, But first, we have a couple of um, people to assist. And if you wouldn't mind reading our first letter for us, we can get started.
0: So the very first one is about unexpected grief. And it reads, A high school teacher I had over a decade ago passed away unexpectedly last week. I had not kept in touch with him, though he had a profound impact on me and I often share stories of being in his class. His wife was a favorite teacher of mine as well, and he always talked about his young child. Grief has really sucker punched me to a degree I did not expect. We weren't close, and I've historically been able to process loss in what felt like a reasonable way. But every time he comes up, I get teary, and I keep thinking I see him when I'm out and about. I've spent two days sobbing, unable to stop thinking of his family and all the students and faculty mourning him. I've been so distraught that I had to take an afternoon off work and would take more time if I felt like I could. Even now, it's not so much that I find my emotional state completely unreasonable, but I don't know how to explain to the people in my life or my employer why this has been so difficult. It's not like I lost a family member or a close friend. Is this reaction totally out of proportion? How can I feel more at ease holding space for myself to grieve someone I haven't seen in a decade?
1: I think my thought here was... um the letter writer doesn't seem to be doing or saying anything that I would encourage them to scale back on. Like I would maybe have more specific advice if they were like, and I'm talking to people who were very close to him as if we both knew him in the same way. Or I'm, you know, trying to sign up to deliver a eulogy. Like if if any of that were going on, I would certainly have some advice. Hey, you're
0: doing too much. <laughs> yeah,
1: but this one really just struck me as, Somebody I didn't expect to die died. And it's incredibly sad. And I took an afternoon off work, which I think more than anything, actually, this letter just made me kind of sad about how difficult it is for people to get time off of work. Mm -hmm. Um, Because that just felt so like you took an afternoon off because you were crying.
0: Right. That
1: seems, you know, that seems like just a human thing.
0: Right. I've been thinking a lot about holding space for grief. And even that phrasing holding space is something that not everyone can articulate well. So I really appreciated um, this listener, this writer speaking in this way. What I'll say is self-care and wellness has been commodified in the last few years by major corporations who are now using brand awareness and you know expensive items and massages and things like that to basically tell people that this is how you have to care for yourself as opposed to taking a nap, drinking water and holding space for grief. And so I think in thinking about how you can unpack self-care, I think that this person is doing a great job in taking space for themselves. I think that all emotions are valid, right? And so saying is is my emotion is it unreasonable? Is it too much? I think is a societal reaction to people showing emotions. Um, I also think that when you really unpack what their dynamic otherness might be, you know whether they are uh, identifying as a man or they might identify as a person of color or queer or something uh, intersectional, I think that that only becomes more prevalent to not necessarily focus on mental health and focus on it in a way that makes sense. But Danny, to your point, I've also been thinking so much about uh, maternal health care and, and work leave for mothers. And I just read this article a couple of days ago that said, the United States is the only country that does not have paid leave for mothers. And it's not just first world country. Like they they went all around the entire world and it's the only one. And it's, you know, I have 10 nieces and nephews. So I think so much about how difficult it is, especially during the pandemic, to make sure that they're all healthy, happy, thriving, being educated, things like that. And um, yeah, it's, it's exactly what you said. Taking time off of work should not be so difficult. Do You know what I mean? You should be able to tell your boss, I need a mental health day and, and that should be it.
1: Yeah. And so I think to that end, you know, the letter writer asks, I don't know how to explain this to my employer. Don't, you know, free yourself from that burden. Um, unless there's like an outstanding email from HR that says we need some sort of information on why you took that afternoon off. But again, give them the bare minimum, something personal. Family emergency. something came up. Whatever you need to say, uh, yes. deliver the bare minimum information for HR. to rubber stamp the afternoon off that you took, and nothing else. um you don't you don't need to explain this to your employer. And I think, you know, letter writer, you you say, I'm not sure how to explain this to the people in my life. And I can certainly understand why you might want to explain further if someone who knows you well and knows that you haven't seen him in years is surprised to see you weeping quite intensely. but, you seem to have a really clear sense of scale here, letter writer. You're aware that while this person was really formative in your growing up years, you know that you two didn't have an ongoing close relationship. You're not confusing reality with fantasy. You're not exaggerating how close you were later. Like You have a, a wonderful, robust grip of reality. So I think that's something you can express to people, which is just, I'm really surprised by how upset I've been. We hadn't spoken in a long time, but I've just been really rocked by this. I think that's all that you would need to say. And, I, you know, I hear in this letter this this idea of normally I have reasonable reactions to loss. And mm-hmm. I think I understand they're trying to say like, I know how to like contextualize things or prioritize things um, in a way that feels approachable or, or, or legible or uh, reasonable. And And I get that. But also, you know, letter writer, at the risk of sounding condescending, like grief is not reasonable. Loss is not reasonable. Death is not reasonable.
0: Especially unexpectedly. You know, it's not something that you knew was coming and you had time to prepare for it, as if that makes it easier.
1: Yeah. And sometimes it's just like it, it can depend on what's going on in our own life when news that maybe a year earlier would have felt sad but remote suddenly feels like it's hitting very close to home. And again, you are not doing anything inappropriate. You're not saying anything inappropriate. You're just feeling a lot. That makes sense to me. Death is horrible. It's final. Um, it's it's non-negotiable. You can't bring someone back. Mm-hmm. Um, he has it sounds like still a fairly young child, so I, I imagine part of what you're grieving is also just the sense that there are other people whose lives will never be the same, and this will happen to me and everyone I have ever loved. And that's, you know, a lot of. I, I think a lot of the sort of life that a workplace depends upon has to uh, has to do with like, if not denying the reality and the presence of death, at least saying, well, it's a it's a long way down the road, and maybe maybe it won't be so bad, and we'll figure something out between now and then. And this is reminding you that it's not far away and it's not remote and it is awful so i think that's a super reasonable response to have to the horror of death i really do
0: yeah and i'll i'll also add anecdotally you know as a as a queer black woman i am constantly having an internal revolution inside of me and back in 20 i want to say 2016 when i started a couple of jobs ago a corporate job The week before I started, uh, Philando Castile and Alton Sterling had both just been murdered by the cops, similar to the revolution that happened last summer with Ahmaud Aubrey and George Floyd and Breonna Taylor. And again, I, I was in a corporate post when those things happened again. And it was so difficult to hear that news and process that news and still try to not be weepy in a meeting, still trying to make sure that my clients were getting the energy that they needed, et cetera, et cetera. And so it's definitely something that I can really relate to. And it just brings me back to that moment of like quiet moments for yourself. Even if that is closing the door, even if that's going to your car for 20 minutes on your lunch break, even if that's coming to work a little bit later or leaving a little bit earlier, I think that there are some some reasonable grace that you can offer yourself even within the workday that could be, could be helpful. Even what you're eating while you're there, like having some nice calming tea, like all those things really help. So yeah, that's, that's what I would also kind of offer this letter writer as well.
1: Yeah. I I think that really is, that is it. And, And then beyond that letter writer, rather than having to explain to people why it's been so difficult, you can just acknowledge that it's been difficult. I I don't think anyone is going to be, um, put off by that. You can just say, I don't really know why, but it's hit me really, really hard. Agreed. And, and I think people will take that in the spirit in which it is given. And I'm sorry, I'm really, really sorry. That's really sad. Um, and I don't have anything beyond that except for that sad and you should let yourself be sad and you had a very reasonable response to your sadness which was i need an afternoon off of work and then i'll figure out something else
0: agreed Let's move on to the
1: second one. All right. So this one is, is called Awaiting Assignment. In lockdown, I started making music for the first time. It's the first time that I've really made anything personal. I feel really out on a limb and I'm struggling to keep my anxiety in check. I've recently joined an organization that supports women and non-binary people in music, and they are supposed to match me with a mentor. But it's been months. I followed up once and I'm about to do so again, but I feel really demoralized and I'm struggling with the part of me that says I haven't heard back because no one wants to do it since I'm actively terrible. How can I manage that? And also, how do I make sure that these insecurities don't affect my relationship with this organization and whoever they eventually match me with? I want to be able to share my work, but this is making me wonder if I'll ever be able to do that and feel okay.
0: This hits me hard. Um, I... As you, as you mentioned in my bio, I identify as being an artist and an activist, and and in a lot of ways, an artist first. And art and anxiety are intrinsically linked. It's almost it's almost impossible to bifurcate the two. Uh, what I will say is, I'm very encouraged by the letter writer as starting off in exploring the music space. I think as an artist it's it's really important to try to fill ourselves up with different types of art. So a lot of people might just be binging Netflix all day, but you know when was the last time they heard new music or went to a gallery or read poetry and things like that. So I'm really excited to hear that this person has done something as as they've said makes it's something that they've done that feels personal. That being said, whenever something like this happens when you go to a conference and you want to shake someone's hand at the end and give them their resume and you see them walk uh, off the stage and you don't get to talk to them or you send an email and get no response or you you know you're waiting on that one phone call back to get the job and months go by all of that feels really really personal but we have to understand and and also remind ourselves that in this moment when you're sitting and resting in anxiety and insecurities you don't know what's happening on the other end for the other person as well. And so I think, especially right now, in the midst of the pandemic, in the midst of, you know, so much cultural, political, social, just turmoil as we've been experiencing in a vacuum in the past couple of years, uh, I think affording yourself some grace, but also potentially and in an effort to afford some grace to the other people involved as well, I think is something to consider for sure.
1: Yeah. I think all that makes a lot of sense. You know, it's it, it reminds me of our first letter where the part of the question is just, what do I do with big feelings that I don't have an obvious spot for in my life? And part of the answer here is going to be going easy on yourself. And I think uh, other times, letter writer, if you find yourself, you know, ruminating on a line of thought that ends with, and everybody hates me and I'm terrible, and they are all kind of colluding to avoid me, um, that can be a really difficult place. And I find that often the best way to sort of interrupt that is to ask sort of basic common sense questions like, do I really think that everyone in this organization has been spending their time talking about me and my music? Does that seem likely? Does that seem realistic? Um, Is it possible that nobody has made themselves available as a mentor because not everyone volunteers, you know, their expertise and free time that doesn't grow on trees, right? Like that can be hard to find. Um, Like, are there other more logical explanations? Can I think about times that maybe I have let my inbox fill up even when I've wanted to get back to everyone because I had something else going on? And not that that's going to immediately make you feel great, but I think it, it can be helpful to remind yourself when you feel like everyone's thinking about me and they hate me it can paradoxically help a little to remind yourself that you are not quite that important most of the time mm. um, and that no, not not everyone is obsessing about you. And that can be very freeing. You know, it's, it's, it's yeah. not that you don't matter or they never think about you. It just means they have other considerations besides you.
0: Mm-hmm. I think there's also a practical aspect here when we're talking about art and music that we can in 2021 and beyond really think about and kind of unpack here as well. There are so many ways to share your music that does not require someone else to sign off on it. Whether that is creating your own YouTube channel, sharing music on TikTok, sharing it with your friends and your family that you feel comfortable sharing with. Um, I think there's a way to start to get immediate feedback because uh, it looks like, it sounds like that's what you're seeking is some some sort of external validation, some sort of external affirmation, and that's okay. But what I will say is there's never just one thing you can get from one person. And so always ask yourself that question, what am I really seeking here and why? And why, why am I waiting just to hear from this one person? I, I do that exercise in my life all the time. And it's really helped me as I've moved up in my career as well to say, again, as as Danny, you just mentioned, I have eighty one unread emails in my in my email right now. I see them. I see the little notification, and some of them have been there for months. And it doesn't mean that I don't care, but it does mean that it's it's just not the priority to respond to today. So I think especially with the holiday season coming around the corner and everyone trying to rush to the end of the year, I would say, look for ways to share your art and share your heart with others that are in your immediate circle while you're waiting uh, for this for this mentor or a mentor to reach back out.
1: Yeah. I, I think that's right too. Like, yes, letter writer, I do think you should follow up one more time. You've sent one additional email in the last few months. A second email would not be, you know, uh, it would not be like you were blowing somebody's phone up or like um, taking things too far. That's totally appropriate. Just even just to ask, like, do you have a sense of when somebody might become available? And they might say, just nobody's free right now. Um, And then I think at that point, in addition to sending that email, you should also, yeah, look for other ways. Do you want to find an open mic night? Do you want to look for uh, friends of friends who might be interested in playing together or learning from each other? Do you want to try to offer what skills you've developed during lockdown to mentor somebody else. You know, it's not just something that someone else can do for you. There's also somebody who has started playing music even more recently who could benefit from some of the things that you've learned. And I I think that's one of the difficult things about something as open-ended as like a volunteer mentorship relationship. Like there's a sort of understood social script for getting to know someone on a first date second date third date you eventually get to know each other better then you have subsequent conversations about what you both want and you can you know turn a first date into a relationship and I think sometimes when somebody's looking for a mentor there's this sense of someone's just gonna be my mentor rather than that's a you know, that's a real time commitment. That's a real energy commitment. Sometimes you want to meet and discuss whether or not you'll be compatible.
0: A symbiotic relationship. Yeah.
1: And, and it's not just like, okay, let's commit. I'm your mentor. I will mentor you for the next 10 years. I promise I will always be there for you. Like that's a that's a lot to offer someone without trying to get to know them first. So I would also encourage you, let a writer, to think not of just one mentor that only this organization can give you, but as a dynamic in a number of possible relationships. And you could seek out multiple people who do a little mentoring, but maybe also something else.
0: Agreed. Absolutely agreed.
1: Yeah. And I think my just last thought on this subject, letter writer, is as much as I want you to be kind with yourself when you get into that space of everyone hates me because they think I'm terrible, I think you deserve that kind of kindness. I would also be really careful about how you bring that energy or that insecurity to other people because sometimes it can be really overwhelming if you bring your music to someone and you say something like I know this is probably terrible. I'm sure you won't like it. That can that can be a lot to put on somebody else. So again, I don't I don't know if you've been doing that. I don't mean to assume that you have, but just watch out for that. Try to keep down the self-deprecation to like a dull roar.
0: That's a really good point. That's a really really good point. I was uh talking to my partner about this the other day about how difficult it is to accept a compliment, even if you have confidence. And so, if in this scenario you're lacking that confidence and that self-esteem in this area, uh, I think that that's something to to really investigate as well, and just investigate um, this this whole idea of like self valuation and and connected to music and how music is also therapeutic. And I think I think that there's a lot there to to unpack as well.
1: Yeah, I, I mean, I think that self deprecating. Um, thoughts and speech and actions are so complicated because sometimes we think if I'm just hurting myself, it's okay to say as much of this as I like. It couldn't be rude or imposing because I'm mad at myself. Um, But there are actually times when it's in fact like inappropriate to be overly self-deprecating. And that can be really hard to acknowledge because it can feel like I'm already mad at myself and now you're telling me I'm doing something wrong. I I don't know what to do besides jump off a cliff, but um, there are definitely other considerations to sort of keep in mind. I would love to, this feels like a kind of uh, useful moment to bridge over to your own interview projects that you have been doing with the tea. Um, I would love to know a little bit more about how you kind of went from your series of corporate jobs into interviewing celebrities about their deepest feelings, because that just sounds pretty cool.
0: (laughs) Thank you. Um, Love the question and, and how you posed it. What I'll say is I have always been someone who had Hollywood dreams, as many of us have. Um, When I was five years old, I had a Hollywood-themed birthday party by request. And I was not an L.A. kid. I grew up in the Midwest, in Cincinnati, Ohio. And my parents were like, we don't know where you got this from, but we'll lean in. Uh, I grew up as an artist in, in many forms. I used to dance. I sung. I acted. I wrote uh, in college, I went to film school, I directed, I edited, I did sound design, I did so much. But once I graduated, you have to decide how are you going to make money. And all of those things that I had done was not going to be the route when I was 19, 20 years old. And so I ended up really going straight to corporate on the business side of entertainment and stayed there for almost a decade. And um, what I'll say now, being liberated and artistically free from the corporate structure, uh, it's it's life-sucking and soul-sucking to an extent, especially if you're someone who has their own artistic aspirations. Speaking of The Last Letter Writer, um, I also used to play instruments. I played viola, piano, and I just couldn't do any of those things. So uh, last year, really at the height of the pandemic and the civil unrest, I decided to leave my job and start my own production company, Black Monarch. And in doing so, it was only within two to three months that I realized that this idea that I had for a talk show is something that I didn't have to wait to ask permission to do anymore. So I started going live last October, almost exactly a year ago. And I consider myself to be an 85-year-old, 30-year-old. Like I'm a grandma with technology. I'd rather be, you know, typing on my typewriter. And I had never gone live before. So I didn't even necessarily know what that meant. But what it really meant was I could create a space for accountability and build a community of, of listeners, of viewers, of people who were looking for a, a space to be vulnerable. I really enjoyed all of the guests that I had on the show. I had over 30 guests over three seasons. And some of the highlights were, you know, the day before the election last year. So a year ago yesterday, I interviewed Janelle Monet. And with Janelle, we talked about what does it mean to be an artist and an activist that's exhausted? You know, we're not going to know by the end of the day tomorrow, speaking, you know, in past tense, what our future is going to hold. We don't know if this horrible, horrific president is still going to be in office. We don't know if we're going to have four more years of this heavy burden that's been on our on our shoulders. And she, uh, she was very open and honest about her self-care, about her wellness, about her artistic journey, about things that kept her open and receptive and also just rest, knowing when to say no to things, knowing when to kind of hibernate and sequester yourself and fill yourself back up. And so from that point forward, I I made sure that every single conversation hit on those pillars. I spoke to many different multi-hyphenates, whether they were performers or writers or, um, on the business side, people like me, producers, development executives. And I realized that with every single episode season over season, it became a real space for people to not just be vulnerable, but let their hair down. It, it was intentionally over tea. Uh, the tea is, uh, double entendre, you know, you're sipping it, you're spilling it between friends. But beyond that, tea also has so many healing properties. And so I made sure in every episode to also speak on that and say, you know, my stomach is hurting today and that's why I'm drinking ginger tea. I think that so many people, especially on the edges of society, aren't taught how to heal their bodies naturally at all, especially when you factor in like food deserts and things like that. So being able to just share openly a self-care practice that i've I've had and practice since I was in high school, going to the tea shops with my girlfriends, I loved being able to put people on to black owned brands, female owned brands um, and you know, now being sponsored by Taza was exciting and and all of that. But being able to really share as i as I grew with the community um was something really special and and also just on a personal note, it kept me getting out of bed on Tuesday mornings. Um and that's that's something that I needed as well.
1: Yeah. That's so interesting. Did you find that you have spent more time sort of I, I've gone back and forth on this myself, like either prepping a lot of interview questions, reading previous interviews, trying to make sure that you're um breaking new ground, or do you find that you're more interested in seeing where the conversation goes in the moment um for some more flexibility? I don't know, maybe it changes from episode to episode.
0: It's a a little bit of both. I definitely had questions prepared. Um, I did extensive research on on each person I sat with and made sure that they would be comfortable with whatever I asked, because especially as people with uh, public figures, um, it's really critical that I wasn't going to catch them off guard or, you know, having a friend, especially as we were talking about really sensitive personal issues. But that being said... I my interview style did change over time. I realized that I had to go off script and definitely be more conversational and allow the conversation to be free flowing and there are moments where I, I put my index card down and was like, "You know what? Let's just let's just talk." And um certain episodes I also had some games involved like one one episode in particular, we played a game called uh, I think I called it like red flags, green flags or deal breaker, something like that. And we talked about when you're dating someone, here are, some, here are some things that could be considered red flags and is it a deal breaker for you? And so think funny things like if they're covered in excessive body hair, how does that make you feel? Or if they don't brush their teeth twice a day or whatever. Um, but it, it was fun and engaging. And it also allowed the audience, the the listeners, the viewers to, um, to interact as well. But on a deeper level, it kind of also would take the interviewee out of the out of the, sometimes you're kind of in your head, you know, when you're Mm -hmm. answering questions about your career and things like that. And so I always tried to end on like a, on a lighter note, uh, rapid fire, random questions, things like that. So I, I intentionally also tried to make it lower stakes as well.
1: Yeah. Cause it's so interesting, you know, as you say, the goal uh, for the show has been fostering intimate conversations. And yet part of that balance that you're also looking to strike is this is not my necessarily close personal friend who's just hanging out with me. This person is kind of at work right now. We kind of have a working relationship, but I'm also not their you know, sister or their cousin or their best friend. Right. Um, and so trying to get a sense of how do I know in advance what the limits of our kind of intimacy in this time that we'll be sharing together are going to be so that I don't either miss, stake, warmth, or frankness for an invitation to go into the deepest parts of a person's life that they may not be prepared to share.
0: Right. Uh, and that's really
1: challenging, I think.
0: Right. Exactly. And um, something that you might not know, but I'm I'm excited to share is that I also have shot a TV pilot version of the show.
1: Congratulations.
0: <laughs> Thank you. And so um, I'm currently finding a, a home for the tea, a live version of the show. And... What's been really fascinating in shooting that pilot was we actually shot five episodes over the summer and uh, cut together like a 40-minute pilot. And some of the guests that I had were so open to anything. Like they were like, I can't believe the interview's already over. I can't believe the game is done. Like I want to stay for another hour, right? They're very quick interviews. But there were other people, one, one lady in particular who she was so used to, She's she's a very high-profile person and she's so used to... TMZ and gossip magazines and just Instagram and all you know all of these places um, constantly nitpicking at everything that she does and so she is an incredibly savvy businesswoman she is you know someone who is incredibly intelligent very funny very warm but when we first started talking you could tell she had a guard up and so it took some time to realize like when you're sitting on my couch. I'm not here to make you uncomfortable and I'm not here to make you feel bad. And I'm not here to dig the latest dirt, you know, it's, that's never been the goal. And so I think that's another important aspect of the show is if we're talking about pop culture and current events, we're very, very lightly touching on them. Most of the topics are very evergreen intentionally. Yeah. It's
1: such an interesting balance to think about, you know, proximity and distance, both physical and emotional. um, And how do you find a balance that's useful for a given conversation or a given topic or a different person? And yeah, that's a lot of food for thought. I think we should move into our third letter, which I have to say taught me a word I had never heard of in my life. I had to look it up. Uh, it comes yeah. from a subject line. I was
0: gonna say it says the subject line is a goose gog again. Will you define a, a goose gog before we <laughs> before I read? Yeah. So I looked it
1: up and it's it's like British slang for a gooseberry. And I, I was familiar with the fruit gooseberry. I know you can make pies with it and you can also make a dessert called fool. And I guess goosegog is another way of uh saying gooseberry but with the sort of like implication of like a fool or a foolish person. So like
0: Got it. Got I'm just it. A goof. Okay. I'm a fool, yeah. Got it. That's so interesting. Okay, cool. So here we go. Uh it says, my two closest friends have started dating again. This is a pattern. Whether I'm in a tight three-person friend group a larger group of work friends, or more recently, an online assortment of friends from my graduating year, the two people I care for most start kissing each other reliable as clockwork. I'm sure the trouble is me. I like to think I'm smart, a good friend, and not desperately unattractive, but I'm drawn to people who are amazing and they tend to wind up to more drawn in turn to each other than to me. I can't slope off as I have in the past. This time, it's two of my best friends I've ever had. And in different ways, they've both gotten me through the pandemic. This time, I've also, unfortunately, been nursing a long-distance crush on one of them. How do I deal with this? I think I'd be handling it better if this situation wasn't a recurring fixture in my life. Do you have any advice for the perennial odd woman out?
1: I I Where to begin. <laughs> I had a pretty strong reaction to this. Not like intense, just like I had a pretty immediate sense of like, oh, I don't think this is a problem. Mm. Like t- to me, this was like the way that this letter writer has framed it is sort of like, I-, I don't know, if you were writing a sitcom, it might be a funny complaint for a character to have. But like this feels like sort of a version of like having that you know, main character syndrome of just thinking like everything revolves around me. People are consciously making decisions on on the basis of their relationship to me. And it's just like, another way of framing this is I know a lot of people who have sometimes dated each other. Right. Which is just not that unusual. Many people start dating someone they met through friends. Um, or uh, were friends with for a while before they started going out. I I would really be surprised if, if we were to do some sort of informal poll of all of the, you know, eventual couples that you're talking about, if all of them would say, yes, the letter writer was the sort of fulcrum of our relationship to one another. Like, that was how we knew each other. That was how we related to one another. We sat down one day and decided we'll either date each other or one of us will try to date the letter writer. Which will it be? And we always picked each other so much as, They would say, Oh, yeah, we were all part of a group. And then some of us started going out. And so I just, I think this sort of fixation on all of these people thought about dating me, decided against it, and chose instead to date a friend of mine who they think of as a friend of mine rather than a separate person just feels really um, counterproductive at best. Mm.
0: That's so interesting. So, you know, my company is intentionally called Black Monarch Entertainment. I consider myself to be a social butterfly and have forever. And so I've definitely been in, in stickier situations where uh I've I've pined after a friend or, you know, pined after someone who was taken or not taken, but not single, not available. Um, and you know, those those feelings are natural and they they happen. So what I'll say is. I would investigate this feeling of. I I really liked how you phrased it, Danny, of uh, main character syndrome. I'm definitely going to be stealing that. Um, it's something that it, I've been accused of. It's not original to me,
1: just to be clear. Yeah,
0: <laughs> it's 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 interesting because I've I've also been accused of being sometimes like a self centered person, and for me, I I tend to frame it as well you know, I am the main character in my life and I am, you know, it's important for me to protect my peace. It is important for me to hold myself accountable. It is important for me to know that at the end of the day, when you lay your head on your pillow, it's you and you hope you wake up to, to live another day. So all of that is definitely true. But what I will say is, you know, though you are the main character, the most important person in your life, Every other person in your life, they're not just secondary characters. They're not, it's not an ensemble. It's not a sitcom. They're not just there to service you, your thoughts, your feelings, your actions, and your emotions. And so there's also something here on the the flip side of this where there's something happening where other people's happiness is causing you pain. And I think that that's also something to really think about and to consider because with your with your, the people that you consider your friends. Friends are different than acquaintances. They're different than colleagues. They're different than family. They're in their own category, all of their own. And I think that there's something, I'll just call it what it is, something almost toxic about being the kind of friend who isn't happy when their friends are happy. And I understand that you know this this is a recurring pattern in your life and it does feel personal. But what I will say is, you attract the energy that you put out. And so if you are putting out this energy of, of sourness, of, you know, displeasure, of things like that, when you do see friends of yours being happy, that's not going to help attract a partner. Um, or not even a partner, but uh, a romantic interest. It just isn't. It's it's, a, it's like the opposite side of the magnet.
1: Yeah, I, I feel a little, you know, a, a twinge of guilt because I'm aware the letter writer is already being being very conspicuously down on themselves. And then... You know, we're not saying, gosh, you poor thing, that's so awful. Um, But, letter writer, I don't say any of this to say, like, you're uniquely selfish or this is all your fault or you shouldn't have any patience for your own frustration. Um, Your feelings make a lot of sense. I don't think you need to think about yourself less. I would just encourage you to think of other people uh, as having the same degree of self consideration you know, complex, rich inner lives as you know you have in yourself. And again, that can be challenging because you know the inside of your own head and you don't know the inside of anyone else's. But you say, you know, this is a pattern. Is it? Like, again, like, I don't know that everyone you've ever known who went on to date someone else would have said, gosh, first I was really close with the letter writer, but then I made a conscious decision to move away and date somebody else. Um, Mm -hmm. I think Mm -hmm. you are- Possibly inserting a pattern that, like, yeah, that could fit, but a lot of other patterns could also fit this just as well. And I think the key here for me is not like there was a friend of mine I was incredibly enamored with and I didn't say anything and I wish that I had. And then they started dating someone else. It's just this general sense of all my friends date each other and no one ever dates me. And again, I, I can relate to that general sense of frustration or self pity or loneliness, but you you can't date all of those people all at the same time. So the question is like, why isn't everyone trying to date me? Is not a fair expectation to bring to dating. I think maybe the question there is like, if I'm starting to develop a crush on a friend, what are my other options besides keep it to myself?
0: I was just going to say that. I was just going to say that because the, the phrase that just hit me while you were speaking was the long distance crush of it all. I think that Crushes are lovely to have. Uh, they make you feel alive and they're very exciting, especially in the early stages. But there's something about keeping any kind of feeling bottled up that's not healthy. And so in those moments, Letter Writer, when you feel like it's happening again, I'm I'm having these feelings for someone and I'm unable to share it... Uh, Maybe maybe think of other ways to share your feelings. It could be writing... I actually saw this video on YouTube. It was a social experiment that happened a few years ago. But it was a series of guests sitting in a chair in the park. And there was blank pieces of paper and envelopes. And you basically got to write a letter to the one that got away. And you either... They were either going to mail the letter or they were going to keep it and say, or save it for the next person that sat down to read. And it was an interesting social experiment because so many of these people had never thought to write their feelings down ever. And so it's something to consider whether or not you share those words with someone else that that onus is on you. But I think instead of keeping these feelings bottled up similar to how you wrote a letter here, uh, consider writing it down, consider keeping a, a love journal, a little pink book, so to speak. I think that it's, it's a very healthy way. It's a very cathartic way to sift through and process all of these feelings that sometimes just feel like they're, you know, bottled up in your in your head and in your heart.
1: Yeah. I think that's really useful. I think anything that's going to help this letter writer maintain a more present awareness of her feelings and her desires, um, and then also try to figure out what are some things that I might want to try to do with those things. Maybe it's that I have a habit of befriending people. I would actually like to ask out on a date, but because for whatever reason, I don't Think they'll say yes, or I'm afraid of the risk. I instead strike up an overture of friendship and hope that they will simply be so won over by my delightfulness that they will ask me out. Uh, in which case, you know, you might want to think about what if I started asking people out? I, I think again, just. It's so easy if you feel really invested in this narrative of, I am always overlooked. I am always the odd one out. I am never going to get my fair due of what I see other people around me getting. It is so easy to become so attached to that view of yourself that you perpetuate it and say, like, if I asked someone out or I started speaking up, then it would mean that any potential romantic outcomes I would get would be fraudulent because I shouldn't have had to ask for it. Someone should have recognized that I was being a wallflower and walked up to me wearing like riding breeches and a beautiful signet ring and said, like, (laughs) I've noticed your exquisite loneliness and it (laughs) ends today. It's a lot of rom-coms.
0: It's a lot of (laughs) rom-coms.
1: Yeah. And just that fantasy that somebody else is going to do the work for you of naming what you want is going to hurt you a lot. And it's going to add a lot of unnecessary pain on top of the pain that we all have to go through as you know people and beings with desires and needs and hopes and fears. Um, and so I want you letter writer to start to spare yourself some of that. And so instead of, why does this always happen to me? Ask more concrete questions. Who interests me? What can I do with a crush besides linger with it forever alone in a corner? Um, And then also, you know, letter writer, it kind of sounds like you say you you slope off from your friendships every time your friends couple up, which
0: again Mm. suggests to
1: me that maybe you've been starting a lot of friendships that you actually want to be romantic relationships. And then when you don't get what you want, you kind of Again, I don't want to be too harsh and be like, you abandon people. But it sounds like you kind of are just like, I'm done. And that to me suggests, again, that there's some work to be done in terms of making sure that you invest in friendships where you're not mostly just pining after someone so that you can have like a long, sustainable, friendly relationship that's not just cover for the torch you're carrying.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I also… I love Danny that you are encouraging the letter writer to ask people out. I think um it's something that I think about in my relationship all the time. So, traditionally my girlfriend was courting me for many, many dates before we, you know, decided to be exclusive. And I had never gotten flowers on a first date ever. And I was like, this is so amazing. I don't even know what to <laughs> to do with this. Um I was so bowled over. But what became really fascinating was there was a there was a period of time where one day she asked me, Have you ever taken me out on a date? And I had to, to really investigate myself and say, Wow, we date each other every single day. But have I ever picked the restaurant, made a reservation, paid for the ballet, and like made sure that you were wined and dine? And from that point forward. I really had to make sure that it's been a, a true balance in the relationship and in the partnership. And so that's something to consider too is, you know, what are these relationship tropes that we all believe that have to happen in order for a relationship to be successful? Do you have to be asked out first? Do you, you know, do you have to wait for the first kiss? You know, et cetera. And so I think taking some initiative, you know, in doing that inner work and that self-work is something worth trying. And, I, and it could really prove fruitful.
1: I think that is so, so useful and helpful. I just think again, not that you can never hope for like thoughtfulness or surprise in your life, but if you make a rule, I will get I have a better chance of getting the things I want if I ask for them than if I wait for someone else to guess. And so, like for your partner to say, like, I actually want you to do this for me sometimes, it's like, great, thank you so much for sharing that with me. I don't live inside your head. So I don't, I didn't know. And now that I know, I, again, not not that this goes to like obviously there are elements of like basic respect or affirmation that that I, I can understand you shouldn't need to ask someone for, but pretty much everything else you do have to ask. And again,
0: mm-hmm, you know, mm-hmm.
1: I, I think it also just makes more sense than this idea of like, well you know, I'm okay, but I'm drawn to amazing people. And because all of my friends are so amazing, obviously they're all picking each other instead of me. And it's just like, does that really sound, I I can understand why that might feel kind of self-soothing in a sort of self-deprecating way when you're like, gosh, no one ever picks me. But like, do you really think that everyone you've ever befriended is just categorically better than you? (laughs) And then if so, like, why are you surprised and sad if none of them want to go out with you? Like, again, I just, I, that story doesn't wash. Like that story yeah. doesn't yeah. actually stand it's some, up to scrutiny. It's some me.
0: circular reasoning for sure. It's definitely some circular reasoning.
1: It protects you because then it's like, well, what can I do? They're just more amazing. There's nothing I could do differently or try to change that would get a different outcome. They're just more amazing than me. And you have to admit that sometimes. And it's like, that's going to be a painful story you keep telling yourself, but that also paradoxically protects you from doing something risky or scary. Like saying, I kind of like you. Would you ever like to go out sometime? Which can just feel like I'd rather die. And it's just like, you don't have to do that. You can avoid it your whole life if you want to. But I think you've reached the limit of how well this story is serving you. And I hope you stop.
0: (laughs) Yes. Well said. Very well said.
1: My last piece of advice is, as always, to read Barbara Pym's Excellent Women because it is a uh, wonderful and thoughtful novel about the experience of a slightly prickly and slightly aggrieved woman who often finds herself on the outs. And it's always nice to read novels about complicated inner emotional lives of people.
0: I love that. Yeah. Thank you. What was the title again?
1: Excellent Women.
0: Excellent Women. All right. Adding it to cart. <laughs>
1: yeah. Oh, Olivia, thank you so, so much for taking your time to to talk with me today. Do you have any final parting thoughts for any of our listeners before you go? Also totally fine if you don't, and you just want to say goodbye, I'm going.
0: I do. I would say my very final thought that I would leave is be gentle with yourself. Uh, I think that as we hit on in this in this conversation, that it's been a very tumultuous time, societally, culturally, personally. Um, and it's really a time to just be gentle with yourself. That's, that's the best I can offer.
1: Thank you so much. I think that is very lovely and compassionate advice. And um, I'm just so glad that we got to talk today. Have a fabulous rest of the day.
0: Me too, Danny. Thank you so much. Have
1: a great day. Before I let the rest of you go, I have an update on a recent question. This is from the sinking credit episode of October 8th uh, about the letter writer who was having a little bit of thruple trouble. Here's the update. So I talked with Beth. It wasn't exactly the conversation that you recommended, but it had been several months since she'd stopped talking to me. So I just said, hey, it's been a while. I feel like everything I've heard about what you're up to lately has been secondhand, but I'm really curious about how work is going. She texted back a few hours later with an apology and an update that didn't clarify much, but did express that she felt bad about abandoning our projects and missed working with me. We chatted for a bit and I felt pretty okay. I don't really need to know why she pulled away. I think I just needed to stop feeling like I had to pretend I hadn't noticed. Afterwards, I did talk to Alice and mentioned that Beth and I had become less close over the last few months. Alice had noticed too and was trying to be polite about it herself. I don't think I was as subtle as I thought I was. It was a relief to say that I don't have any issues with Beth, that I think she's a great artist and a cool person, but that we don't really talk or collaborate the way that we used to. Talking to Alice made me feel even better than talking to Beth. I hate keeping secrets from her, not least because I'm so bad at it thanks for your advice. It was definitely a reminder of some baggage that I have about relationships in general, and working on that will probably take a little longer than a text exchange and a single conversation, but luckily I've got the rest of my life for that. Thank you so much. What a lovely update. Uh, I'm so, so glad to hear. I, I think so often when we don't talk about an obvious dynamic, it can just feel like my only two options are take this to my grave or have a huge no holds barred, maximum intimacy, maximum honesty conversation that sounds exhausting and way too fraught. And so I'm really glad that you were able to just have a sort of like brief check in with Beth and another conversation with Alice where you could just sort of say, this is, I think, the new reality as I see it great. Glad that we're all in agreement there. It's okay. I don't need to push. Um, I just feel better not pretending anymore that we're all as close as we were six months ago. So I think that's a pretty great outcome. As you say, you don't need to know everything. Maybe eventually you'll learn more. Maybe eventually you'll find a way to become close again. But if not, you have already improved your situation substantially, and I am so pleased for you. Thanks again. And here's a preview of our Slate Plus episode coming this Friday. Sometimes, not necessarily in this case, but sometimes people will talk about fluidity when they just mean trans. And um, that's not the same thing. Sometimes people say fluidity when they mean trans because what they want to say is, well, obviously, you're not not really a man. Uh, You're not really a woman. It's some sort of crazy fluid thing. Uh, Don't do that. To listen to the rest of that conversation, join Slate Plus now at slate.com forward slash mood.